Hello, and welcome to Jeff Pasito Reads. I'm Jeff Pasito, and this is today's story. And the wars went on without him. Chapter 1. The Great Wars. In 1918, Carlo was but a child. Not more than five or six, he had no memories from that time in his life, save for running. He could remember running, always running, holding tightly to his mother's salt-worn hands, dry and thick and lined with deep fissures of calloused flesh, running. Those hands that had occasionally hit him, punishing him for some now relatively insignificant transgression, presently clung dearly to him, dragging him as she ran to save his life. His child's mind full of bewilderment, all he could remember was running. Running and the whistling shriek of the bombs that were chasing them to the cavernous catacombs that snaked their way through the base of the mountain that stretched to heaven. A beacon of solace in a tumultuous sea of despair. In the relative shelter of the hovels under the great monastery, his mother's heart still raced. His face pressed to her bosom, rivulets of sweat stinging his eyes as they dripped from her skin. He could feel it thumping against his cheek. The whining downpour of bombs was muffled, faint at the end of the tunnel, but each impact shook the earthen walls with such a ferocity it felt as though God himself had the earth in his grasp, shaking it violently. Everything was blurred by a haze of dust as soil rained down all about them. His mother held him tighter yet, her breath coming in sharp heaves, her arms a protective cocoon, as the screaming and crying of an entire village of women and children faded away. By 1920, for all intents and purposes, the war was over. It was the Great War, the war to end all wars. Indeed, it was many things, but mostly it was an end to innocence. Many had died defending both freedom and oppression, everyone killing in the name of God. Many more had died from disease, the derelict husks of people left by the wayside as forgotten chaff when the bleeding finally stopped in the scars upon the world. Carlo's father had fought, one of the brave souls forced to take up arms, and thankfully returned. His friend Vittorio's father had fought too, but he never returned. After a while, Vittorio went away too, and never came back. When Vittorio left, Carlo was old enough to see, but not understand why. He could easily see how different their lives were, but didn't know why they had to be so different. Vittorio had stopped coming to school after third grade. That summer was the last time he actually played with Carlo in the few moments they were able to find between helping their parents. Vittorio didn't return to school in the fall. He had to help his mom and older brother take care of their house. He had to do things his older brother would have normally done, since his older brother had to do things his father would have normally done. Vittorio could barely take care of himself at school, let alone take care of his whole family. They were only just learning how to read the previous year. Carlo thought about Vittorio nearly every day he sat in class until the end of the fifth grade, when all children finished school. In those two years, Carlo finished learning how to read and learned about mathematics and religion. He soon forgot about reading, having no need for it, and only remembered what he needed to of mathematics to count crop or more importantly, gamble. Their lives had followed such different paths that when Vittorio finally left Casino, Carlo had barely even noticed. He could remember one of the last times he saw Vittorio. It was on a Sunday while he was on his way to church. Carlo had followed his mother and father through their field, the wheat stalks hip-high and swaying slowly in the gentle breeze. They carefully stepped across some protruding stones in the brook that divided their land from the Viaccios. 
his mother holding up the hem of her dress slightly, his father reaching back with strong, supportive hands to help them over. They hit the dirt road that snaked away from their tiny plot in the valley and began their trek. They took the slight incline of the road slowly, because although it wasn't steep, it was long and would tire them out should they quicken their pace. As they walked that day, Carlos saw a cart coming down the road towards them. The donkey pulling at the worn cart absentmindedly swayed back and forth, dragging the cart towards one ditch, then the other, that lined either side of the road. Vittorio was seated on the cart, a long switch in his hand that he would strike against the ass, trying to encourage it into a straighter line. When the donkey started to veer right, he'd flick his wrist and a quick snap of the branch to the donkey's right flank, followed by a soft bray straightened him. When the tired donkey wanted to go left, a quick backhanded whip righted him once more. Carlos slowed his pace even more, falling a few steps behind his parents' pilgrimage, to watch as Vittorio awkwardly rolled by. He saw the bags under Vittorio's eyes, and the deep lines that had eroded their way into his face. His skin had dried and wrinkled like a prune in the harvesting sun. Eyes wide and mouth hanging open, Carlo thought that Vittorio looked more and more like a father than a friend. It was 1942, and the bombs were chasing Carlo once again. This time, he did not run away from them. He could not run. Dug in on a mucky ridge to the east, the regiment he belonged to had been ordered to hold their ground at all costs. Moisture from the damp earth seeped through his fatigues and permeated his flesh, soaking him through to his bones. His limbs ached from the saturation that pierced his flesh relentlessly. Thankfully, standing their ground involved very little movement, which meant struggling against the weight of his drenched clothes and weakened body was unnecessary. Hunkered down as they were in the trenches, the shells of the enemy mortar fire couldn't get to them. That didn't stop them from coming as close as they could. Each impact sent sprays of sodden earth cascading through the air and down into their hovel. The earth beneath Carlo seemed to vibrate constantly with the assault, and his ears rang incessantly as each rumble of allied mortar fire was answered with a barrage of Axis gunfire. The scent of dirt and cordite hung heavy in the air. At a stalemate for what felt like days, the only accomplishment of these actions was to deafen the soldiers and line the pockets of munitions manufacturers. Laying prone against the steep slope of the trench, Carlo's ID tags slipped out of his button-down jacket as the artillery impacts continued to shake the earth. The tags were followed promptly by the gold cross and cornetto as they struggled out of his uniform as well. His mother had given him the cross on the day of his confirmation, and his wife had given him the elan-shaped horn on their wedding day. But it wasn't the memory of those two people that struck a chord with him. It wasn't the tags with his family name stamped on them, a name synonymous with his home, that pulled his mind miles away. It was the man who sat in the dirt beside him, shaking and shivering, that made Carlo think of his home, of Casino. The man's name was Bruno. That's all Carlo knew about him. That's about all any of them really knew of each other, save for their military prowess. He knew that Bruno was a good point man, had a relatively steady shot, and that he'd give his life for the squad. He knew Bruno smoked alpha cigarettes, but really, who didn't? He also assumed Bruno was a little quirky, since he had a habit of tying his socks together and wearing them like a bandana across his forehead. Aside from those basic facts, he didn't know anything else about the man he now lived beside and could very well die beside. He didn't know that the lined and wrinkled face, dark as fresh rich soil, came from harvesting fields of olives in the high southern sun. He didn't know that the slight skip in Bruno's step was from an injury he suffered when he nearly fell down a well in the village he grew up in when he was nine. 
He also didn't know that, despite his complaining, being a soldier in the army was exactly where Bruno wanted to be, just to be free of slaving on his boss's plantation. Most importantly, he didn't know that Bruno could never afford shoes, and that was the reason why he didn't wear his socks. He wanted to know exactly what it felt like to wear something so new and sturdy on his feet. Carlos squinted up through the hazy veil of smoke as another shower of detritus rained down on them from above. The whistle of the shells sounded as though they were getting closer and closer, and each thudding impact felt like it could have been mere inches away. But he knew that was just his nerves getting the better of him. The shells were falling just as far away as they were an hour ago, and they would be falling at the same distance an hour from now. He wondered how they could maintain the incessant barrage. It was like all the ordnance of the war had been rerouted to this battlefield, both sides taking everything their countries had to offer in an unending contest of one-upmanship. When he looked down at Bruno again, he didn't see the young man with grease smeared across his face, eyes in a perpetual state of bewilderment. Instead of his scarred, cracked lips full of mud and spittle, he saw the tender, pouting lips of his five-year-old Benito back home. He saw the soft, rounded forehead of his two-year-old Antonio under the bruises and welts that marred Bruno's face. He saw the innocent yet mature eyes of his seven-year-old Guido instead of the horrified, shell-shocked eyes that were really there, pulsing in Bruno's sockets. Then he saw them all in the ditch. Not Bruno and Carlo and the rest of their troop, but the frail, innocent bodies of his sons, lying in the ditches of wars twenty, thirty, and forty years from now. And he saw men, other people's sons, looking at Guido, Tony, and Benny, and knowing how well they could shoot, or how well they conserved rations. These strangers would know how loyal his sons were, but would know nothing about their families, about their lives, about who they really were. Before the sun had baked off the foggy dew of the next morning, Bruno was dead. The shipment of sulfathiazole that they had been waiting for didn't make it through the enemy blockade. Without the antibiotics to help his already compromised system, Bruno had lost his fight with the infection that had grown around the shrapnel cut in his leg. The shells never did come any closer, and one day they stopped entirely. Carlo had seen soldier after soldier, compatriot after compatriot, friend after friend, succumb to the horrors that had befallen them. The platoon was a ghost of its former self, and the Allies marched through them like a scythe through ripe wheat. So few were still alive, and those that were had no strength left to be of any consequence, and so the position fell without contest. Thank you for listening to the first chapter of And the Wars Went On Without Him. Please join us next week for the second chapter, Prisoners of War. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can reach me by email at jeff at That's J-E-F-F at P-A-C-I-T-T-O dot com. On Twitter at jpasitoreads or visit our website at pasito.com. See you soon.